We are continuing our discussion of the rapture, and man, I have been looking forward to this for some time, and uh, spent a lot of time kind of reviewing and adding some new slides and tweaking things a little bit, but uh, I don't know how many sessions we'll spend on this, but I don't imagine anybody will mind. Anybody mind if we spend several weeks talking about the rapture? No Amen. All right. Well, uh, this is, this is uh, uh, what I'm calling the rapture, a great rescue. And again, we introduced this subject uh, in the last session, and we'll continue kind of going as far as we can in our 45-minute allotment each uh, Sunday morning, and then pick up where we left off uh, again next week. But lots to come, lots to come this morning, and lots to come uh, in the coming weeks as we continue to talk about what lies ahead. So the big picture here is obviously biblical prophecy, what lies ahead, uh, but specifically as we zero in this week and in the next few weeks, we're talking about uh, the rapture, which is the next great prophetic event uh, to which the world looks forward. Uh, and I want to say before we, uh, well, let me mention the, the book again real quick for those of you that don't have it or would like to get it. It's out on the table. We only have, I think, one copy left out in the lobby, but I've got more uh, coming in. <clears throat> and then those of you that are watching on video, remember you can get it uh, at the notbyworks.org store. Just go to notbyworks.org, click on the store. Uh, if you do decide to get the companion book, What Lies Ahead, which is a 350-page, fully comprehensive overview of the end times, uh, be sure and use the coupon code WLA when you check out. It'll save you 25%. But as we review, uh, let me begin uh, by saying... I know there are people, perhaps even here and perhaps watching, I'm certain watching online because I get emails and stuff from them, that really struggle with this notion of the rapture. Uh, and that's because there's been a lot of bad teaching about it. And I don't mean that in a moral way or in a personal attack way. It's just incorrect uh, teaching. The devil loves to confuse people. And based on how people uh, handle the Word of God, they may value the Bible, love the Bible, consider it the Word of God and the inerrant, infallible Word of God but they have a different approach to interpreting it. And so they've come up with different conclusions about uh, the rapture. And so for a lot of people, uh, they see the word rapture and they immediately have a visceral reaction of, oh, this is junk or nobody believes this or this was just something made up in the 1800s. Well, I hope if that's your perspective, whether you're watching on video or whether you're here in the room, uh, you'll give me the opportunity to make the case biblically. Because it's unfortunate that such spurious attacks have been levied at those who believe in the rapture because uh, that certainly isn't an accurate reflection of where the doctrine of the rapture comes from. The doctrine of the rapture goes all the way back to the upper room in 33 AD when Jesus was meeting in that intimate moment with his disciples and for the first time ever on planet earth he gave a reference to what we're talking about which later Paul would call the rapture and that is a biblical term. And so, and throughout church history, people have often taught in every century a two-phased return of Christ, once for the church and once uh, for, uh, to come and establish His kingdom and inaugurate the kingdom on earth. So this is not a novel view. It's not a made-up view. It's not a man-made view. It's a biblical view. Now, after we work our way through the biblical text over the next few weeks, um, if, having studied the biblical text, you still disagree, that's fine. I want, you to, I want to encourage you to study the Word and come to your own conclusion. Don't just believe something because I say it. Don't ever do that, uh, although I'm pretty sure I'm right. Uh, but don't just ever believe something just because I say it. Uh, but at least do yourself a favor and study it through the lens of Scripture. Don't just dismiss uh, what 
you know, what people say about the rapture just because they don't agree with it. Um, so by way of review, we talked about when we started this series, why we should study the end times. And there are several reasons. Uh, number one, first and foremost, is that one third of the Bible is prophecy. And half of that has not yet been fulfilled, which means that one sixth of the Bible pertains to future things that we can look forward to. So if you don't care about what the future holds, then you can skip that part of the Bible. But if you, like I, and like I think most people, do care about what lies ahead, you need to study it. And then we talked about the big picture and God's kingdom promise. We kind of took the 30,000-foot view and started at Revelation. I mean, at Genesis and went all the way to Revelation and said, what is God doing? When God, the creator of the universe, chose to unveil his plan to mankind through the written word, by the way, this is God's self-revelation, self-unveiling to mankind. And in this book, he gave us everything we need for life and godliness. And a big part of that, again, one-sixth, is what lies ahead. And so uh, the big picture is God, going all the way back to the garden, made a promise. That promise was reiterated through uh, covenants and, uh, you know, uh, a guarantee through Abraham and through David and through the prophet Jeremiah uh, and through Moses in the, in the land covenant in Deuteronomy. Uh, and, and, and it's reiterated again and again in the New Testament as the, through the angel Gabriel and the angel of the Lord and others. And so uh, this is part of God's plan that a future earthly kingdom will occur with Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, on the throne, ruling with a rod of iron in perfect peace and justice. And uh, so we ask the question, where is that promised kingdom? And that leads us to the end times, this what lies ahead portion of Scripture, the one-sixth of the Bible that is yet to come. And uh, as we talked about the rapture last week and introduced it, we said you can't really understand the doctrine of the rapture without first understanding there's a distinction between the church and Israel. And so last week we looked at the purposes for the church, straight out of Scripture, and the purposes for Israel. And we talked about how the church is called a mystery. We're going to come back to that term again this morning. So if you didn't catch last week's uh, session, I encourage you to go back and watch that um, because it's really foundational as we get into the, the rapture in earnest uh, today. So here we are looking at what lies ahead, remembering God's kingdom promise, remembering that this promise is guaranteed with a covenant that God made, a unilateral one-directional, unconditional covenant, an, an I-will statement of God, and yet we still find ourselves waiting patiently for the kingdom. It's been 2,000 years and still no kingdom. Um, should we give up hope? That's what a lot of Christians have done. Uh, you know, Satan is the great deceiver. He's distracted a people. He, he encourages people to get uh, their minds off of the Lord and to stop doing what Jesus said, which is to look up and be watchful because your redemption draws nigh, and instead to become consumed with the cares of this world. And boy, if there's ever a time when the, the world is really divided into two camps, those who are obsessed and fearful of all that's coming down the pike in our world with this global new world order and one world system, versus those who say, come Lord Jesus more than ever, Maranatha, it's now. We see this, this great... Uh, division. Uh, so we are waiting patiently for the kingdom, and I'm going to talk more about 
that here in just a second. But let me put up this chart, uh, which we'll come back to again and again throughout this series and various iterations of it when I zero in on different parts. But this essentially is a snapshot. Now, it's not fully comprehensive of every unfulfilled prophecy, uh, but it's certainly a good framework for that one-sixth of the Bible that is coming down the pike, that, that lies ahead. And you'll notice that the cross, of course, representing Calvary when Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. And then you've got the church in there. This is obviously not drawn to scale, but Ephesians chapter 3 over there on the left reminds us that the church is a mystery, something that was unfulfilled in the Old Testament and is now a part, it is now the present age in which we live. So far it's been about 2,000 uh, years. But then you'll notice that the next great prophetic event, the first prophetic event that has yet to happen, is the rapture. And the rapture starts the clock ticking on that final one-sixth of the Bible that has not come to pass yet, what we call the end times, or in theological terms, eschatology, future things, right? So this is what we're talking about. I just wanted to kind of put it in a, a chronological perspective for you. And again, this chart doesn't mean it's true just because I created a chart. This chart is based on biblical data and the biblical text. And we're going to come back to this again and again throughout this series and sort of make the point, make the, the, the case that these things happen in this order. That you know Daniel's 70th week, uh, also called the seven-year tribulation or the great day of the Lord's wrath, is a seven-year period. That th It starts with three and a half years of protection for Israel. Then the abomination of desolation is at the midpoint when the Antichrist sets himself up as God and demands that everyone worship him and defiles the temple. And, and then it's going to follow, be followed by three and a half years of persecution uh, for Israel, followed by the Battle of Armageddon and the second coming of Christ to inaugurate this long-awaited kingdom when the covenant program of God comes to fulfillment. And then a, a thousand years of uh, earthly reign of Christ on the old earth, what we call the millennium, you see there. And then the kingdom, the messianic kingdom continuing on in perpetuity for all of eternity because that's what the Bible has always said about the kingdom. When Christ comes back, the Messiah comes back to take the throne, he will rule forever and ever and ever. Of his kingdom there will be no end. So that's the reason I diagram it out this way. Some uh, charts will just call the kingdom a thousand years, but that's a little misleading because the kingdom is eternal. The millennial phase of the kingdom is a thousand years on the old heaven and the old earth. So, so much to talk about, but uh, I don't, again, I, may, drawing it up in a chart doesn't make it true. What makes it true is a correct handling of the word of God, and I'll be coming back to this and making the case with each one of these events. We're going to talk about the battle of Gog and Magog. We're going to talk about the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments. We're going to talk about the two witnesses and the 144,000 missionaries. And we're going to talk about the unveiling of the Antichrist and the signing of the peace treaty and the battle of Armageddon. And we're going to talk about a lot of different things. But uh, this is where I want to put this up so you could see that when we speak of the rapture, we're talking about the next great prophetic event. There's nothing that has to happen. You notice there are no prophecies prior to the rapture, just the church age, where we are now. Nothing has to happen before the rapture happens. So we can never look at world events and say, well, the rapture can't happen anytime soon because X, Y, and Z haven't happened, right? Um, they don't have to happen. Nothing has to happen before the rapture. The rapture could happen today. It could have happened yesterday. Could have happened 500 years ago. Could have happened 1,500 years ago. It could have happened in Paul's day. Um, 
but it hasn't. And so uh, that brings us back to this idea of waiting patiently for the kingdom. Now, Hebrews chapter 2, I want to show you several passages now that speak of the kingdom as if it's future. And this is critical because amazingly, many people today mistakenly think that we're living in the kingdom, that the church is the kingdom, that the kingdom is now. It's called kingdom now theology, right? Uh, I don't know how you can get there from Scripture based on passages, for example, like this. Here's the writer of Hebrews. We've talked about this verse in our Sunday morning sermon series on the book of Hebrews, uh, speaking to Jewish Christians, and he says, He has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. And then he proceeds throughout the book of Hebrews to refer to that future kingdom and the promise of the kingdom. And he references uh, Abraham and others. So this kingdom is yet uh, to come. For example, in Hebrews 6, he says, When God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. He goes on, Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise. That's us. That's the writer's original audience, but by extension, under the inspiration of the Spirit, uh, us. As we read the epistles today, we know that as part of the church, we are, t are also heirs of this promise. So he says, so that we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that we're currently living in in the kingdom today. Is that what it says? No, that is where? Set before us. See, there's still a future hope. And then he says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. And he reminds us in chapter 10 that he who promised is faithful. See, people struggle interpreting the book of Hebrews because they miss that first uh, opening you know, statement there in chapter 2, that he's speaking of the world to come. The world to come. And that world to come holds great promise for us. In chapter 12, he says, Since we are receiving a kingdom, that's critical. Not we have received a kingdom. Remember, this was written in 67, 80, 33, 34 years after the establishment of the church on the day of Pentecost in 33 AD. And they had not received the kingdom yet. We are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Let us have grace and serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. And then as you go through the New Testament, you see several references to the church anticipating something yet future, such as in Titus 2.13, when Paul says, we're looking for this blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, when you compare Scripture with Scripture, which we're going to do starting this morning and over the next few weeks, uh, you see that the rapture is not the same thing as the second coming. The rapture and passages related to the rapture are all filled with hope and encouragement and comfort, whereas passages related to the second coming are filled with judgment. All right. So the blessed hope here is a reference uh, to the rapture. Remember Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, If in this life only we have hope, we are of all men most pitiable. So those who suggest that we're living in the kingdom today and, uh, you know, this uh, uh, you know, sort of Christian hedonism, one, one particular author talks about it in that terms, uh, are missing the point. Um, 
I mean, I, I don't want to make an application that seems unfair, but I mean, in Paul's own words, that's a pitiable perspective. It's a pitiable perspective to think that this is the best that it gets. And we've talked about last week, uh, and I hope you watched that uh, video. If you haven't already, go back and watch it. How important it is to study the Bible according to the chronological progress of Revelation. That you start with prior Revelation and move forward in time. You can never start with something that was written in the first century and use it to then help interpret something that was written a thousand years earlier. That violates all sorts of rules of communication. And it's a simple thing to remember because just ask yourself, when God promised the kingdom to David 1000 BC, 1000 years before Christ, how would David have understood it? And if it's not possible to understand it until a thousand years later when God comes back and gives us the real meaning of it, well, then how is that fair to David? Isn't that disingenuine to the original recipients of God's revelation if it were not even possible for them to understand it? Of course it would be. So we understand that the Bible is written over time, over a period of 1,500 years, and as God unveiled more and more and more and more information, he tells a story. He lays out a plan. He gives us the roadmap for future things. And as he does so, we find out that the kingdom is still yet future. And David understood uh, that the kingdom was future, and he also understood, as did the other readers of the Old Testament in their original context, that that kingdom had certain qualities and characteristics. And nothing about those characteristics as described by, say, Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36 or Jeremiah or, or, or uh, you know, any of the Old Testament prophets, nothing about it correlates to what we see happening today. This is not the kingdom. This is the church. The church is unique. And as I talked about last week, it has a unique purpose, a, a unique place in God's plan uh, of the ages. So we wait. We wait patiently. Remember what Jesus said when he ascended uh, from the Mount of Ascension to the right hand of the throne of God. The disciples still very much interested in, in, in seeing this kingdom and having it be inaugurated on earth so they could experience all of the blessings that the prophets of old talked about related to the kingdom said, Lord, are you at this time going to restore your kingdom to Israel? And what did he say? He didn't rebuke them for their literal understanding of the kingdom. He simply said, it's not for you to know the times, the, the length or duration of things, nor the seasons, kairos, the exact date. It's not for you to know those things. He goes on to say, just go back to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. So, because we don't know the specific time, it makes it a little bit harder, some would say a lot harder, to wait patiently, doesn't it? I mean, think about it from the bigger picture of, of, a, of a timeline. I mean, you and I are having to wait 30, 40, 50, 60, 80 years, 90 years, however long the Lord allows us to live. But the church as a whole, the Jew and Gentile in one body, the body of Christ, has been waiting 2,000 years, right? And it makes it hard not knowing when this is going to happen. Um, later in Paul's writings, this idea of waiting is going to kind of become a central theme. And seven different times, Paul uses a particular Greek word to refer to Christ's return at the rapture. In fact, 
This word's only used seven times in the New Testament, and every single time, all seven, it refers to the rapture. And it's the word apekdekamai. Apekdekamai. It means to expect anxiously, to look forward to something eagerly, with hope, to be in a continual state of expectancy. Now, when did Paul write? Paul wrote in the first century from, say, he wrote Galatians first, that was 48 A.D., uh, and he died in 67, 68, spring of 68 A.D., so that's 33, no, let's see, 48 to 68, we'll say 20 years, right? So over a period of 20 years, 2,000 years ago, Paul was eagerly, expectantly, anxiously looking forward <coughs> to the Lord's uh, return. Uh, for example, in, Ephesians, in Philippians 3.20, he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior. Now, if Paul was living in the kingdom, and all of the prophecies of the Old Testament had already been fulfilled as you know, many suggest today, why would he still be eagerly waiting for something more? It's because they haven't, the prophecies of old hadn't been fulfilled yet. One-sixth of them relate to future things. They were future from Paul's perspective, and guess what? They're still future from our perspective. The, the church age does not have a quantified, definable length of time associated with it in Scripture. So far, it's been 2,000 years. As I look at the landscape before us, and as I look at what's coming down the pike in terms of the Luciferian conspiracy and all that Satan has been trying to do for the last 6,000 years to usher in the New World Order, I can't help but think that it's going to be soon. But at the same time, I understand history, and I know that the church for 2,000 years in every generation has thought it's going to be in our generation, right? So... Uh, what keeps me up at night is thinking, Lord, I know it's possible that you might call American Christians and me and my family and my children and my grandchildren to undergo intense persecution, suffering, and martyrdom the way many Christians have for the last 2,000 years, and you may tarry your coming. You may, it may not be for another 100 years. And I pray, Lord, give me the grace to endure if that is, is your will. But what I hope for and if you back me into a corner and say, what's your prediction? I would say, I really think that the rapture is going to happen very soon. Uh, but it's future. It was future from Paul's perspective. But that's apekdekamai, eagerly waiting for the Savior. And again, in Romans 8, he says, if, what we, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Apekdekamai. That, in that context, he's talking about the redemption of our bodies that will happen at the rapture, as we're going to talk about in this series. 1 Corinthians 1, 7. Um, we're eagerly waiting for the revelation. What's revelation mean? It means unveiling. Uh, revelation is the Greek word apocalypsis. It's the, it's the name of the last book of the Bible. Although you frequently hear people refer to the last book of the Bible as revelations, plural. There's no such book of the Bible. The last book of the Bible is revelation singular, and it is the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns. So again, I ask, why would God in his self-revelation to mankind have as the last chapter of his revelation, what we call the last book of the Bible, the unveiling of Christ at his return, if it wasn't yet 
future. We haven't seen that yet. So Paul here says at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, we're eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now something that's interesting about 1 Corinthians, I mean 1 Corinthians is a rather lengthy letter and it deals with a lot of uh, moral issues and other issues within the church, the local church setting. But it's, it's always struck me as interesting that this book of 1 Corinthians begins and ends with a reference to the rapture. Right here at the beginning in his opening, Paul says, I'm eagerly looking forward to the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And at the very end, he talks about Maranatha, O Lord, come, 1 Corinthians 16, 22. Even so, come Lord Jesus, right? And then in Hebrews, this is one of those seven times. So I'm, I'm assuming that Paul wrote Hebrews. In all fairness, we don't know for sure who wrote Hebrews. So if Paul did not write Hebrews, then six of the seven usages of Apek Decamai would be by Paul, and one would be by the author of Hebrews. But if, in fact, Paul wrote Hebrews, as many think he did, then indeed all seven occurrences of Apek Decamai would be by Paul. But here's another usage of that word. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time. And so again, we look for this blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. We wait for his Son from heaven. This is a different word, not apic decamai, but it's a synonym, same idea. Paul told the Thessalonians, we wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath that is yet to come. Now we're going to talk about that probably this morning. I can't tell if we're going to get there or not. If not, it'll be next week. But what is the wrath? You know, The wrath of God is a technical term in Scripture that goes back to Old Testament prophets who predicted a great and terrible day of the Lord, a great and awesome day of wrath when God, the creator of the universe, at the climax of time would pour out his wrath upon the earth. And the book of Revelation deals almost extensive, exclusively with that period. So the book of Revelation has 22 chapters, chapters 6 to 18. The bulk of the book deal with the prophetic wrath of God being poured out on mankind through the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments. And we know that that's the wrath because the writer of Revelation, the Apostle John, calls it wrath right from the beginning in chapter 6. Hide us from the wrath that has come upon the earth. Right. So, uh, that's going to become crucial when we get into the timing of the rapture in a moment because the stated purpose twice, as we shall see in the New Testament of the rapture, is to rescue us or deliver us from that time of wrath. So let me interject here because I'm not sure if we'll get all the way there today, so I want to make sure I put this out there for those who may be watching this and have a different perspective. I am not saying, nor does anybody that I know who holds to the biblical pre-tribulational view of the rapture, I am not saying that the rapture rescues Christians before things get really bad. Okay? That's never been the teaching of the rapture. That's a straw man argument that a lot of people who think we're going to go through the tribulation say, oh, you know, these are people that believe the rapture, they think it's good, they're going to get taken out of here before it gets too bad. We don't think that. And it's a naive perspective for anyone who might think that, although I've never heard of any dispensational, literal, grammatical, historical scholar who teaches that. But let's say someone did teach that. That's very naive. It shows absolutely no regard for 2,000 years of church history. Because there have been Christians, believers, for 2,000 years 
who have faced very, very bad circumstances, unspeakable atrocities, persecution, martyrdom. And even today, right now, as I'm speaking, there are more martyrs for the cause of Christ than at any other time in human history. So nobody teaches that the rapture is going to rescue us before it gets too bad. The rescue that we're speaking of in this session today and that the Bible talks about is the rescue before the wrath that is to come. Before the prophetic, great, and terrible day of the Lord's wrath. So, uh, what is the rapture? Let's uh, define our uh, terms. Well, uh, I'll start with 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The first thing we need to understand about the rapture is that like the church, it's a mystery. In talking about the rapture here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, last week, remember I said the church is a mystery, something previously unrevealed, Ephesians chapter 3. Those who insist that the church has replaced Israel in God's plan of the ages, and that there's no difference between the church and Israel, also are the same ones who suggest there's no difference between the second coming and the rapture. That all passages that speak of a return of Christ are the same thing, one return. Now, I'm going to show you, looking at each passage individually, how that can't possibly be the case because the details related to the passages in and of themselves mean they have to be referring to two different things. But the view that there's only one return of Christ, not a rapture for the church, and then a second coming all the way to the earth to establish his kingdom, is held by those who think the church and, the, and Israel are the same thing. And yet the Bible says that the church is a mystery, and similarly, the rapture is a mystery. Listen to what he says. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Sleep is a euphemism for die. In other words, some generation of Christians will come to the day, if, if the rapture were to happen in their day, where they don't experience death. There will be a group of believers on earth alive at the rapture who do, do not experience physical death. That's what he's saying. He says, we shall not all sleep, but we all shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead, that is the dead in Christ, dead believers, will be raised incorruptible, and we, those who didn't die but are alive, will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Because Paul goes on to say, flesh and blood, actually in verse 50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So for us to be able to meet the Lord in the air and go to be where he is, as he said in John 14. Remember, John 14 is the earliest reference to the rapture on planet earth. Jesus is speaking, 33 AD, the night he's betrayed, and he says to the disciples, uh, I will go again, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go again to prepare a place for you, I will come again that where I am, you may be also. He doesn't say that where you are, I may come also. That where I am, you may be also. And he's re referring to the rapture. And then it's uh, some, uh, let's see, 18 years later, in 51 AD, when Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, one of his earliest epistles right after Galatians, that he gives under the inspiration of the Spirit the doctrine of the rapture and begins to explain it and actually uses the term. Um, and so he puts sort of the details together with what the Lord was alluding to in the upper room. But we talked about this term mystery last week. A mystery means previously undisclosed revelation. We said it's to new revelation in God's plan or something that had not been revealed in the Old Testament. 
So the church was never revealed in the Old Testament. It's a new work of God in the present age. And similarly, the rapture is a mystery, something never foretold in the Old Testament. So if you go to the Old Testament and you look at passages that talk about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah to establish his kingdom, to rule and reign with the governments being upon his shoulders, or to rule with a rod of iron, or to sit on the throne on his holy hill, passages like that, those can't be talking about the rapture. Because the rapture had not been unveiled yet. It was not unveiled until the New Testament. It was a mystery. So the rapture, if we want to define it, refers to the sudden catching up of believers to meet the Lord in the air when he returns at the close of the present age. Let me say that again. The sudden catching up of believers to meet the Lord in the air when he returns at the close of the present age. So if you go back to the chart, here's the rapture. The rapture puts an end to the church age. The church age started on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and it will end at the rapture. After the rapture, we have some unspecified length of time, and again, that's not just me making stuff up. That's a clear inference from Scripture. Because we know that sometime after the rapture, that day of the Lord's wrath will begin. And the pinpoint event that starts the clock ticking on that final seven-year period is the signing of the treaty, according to Daniel 9.27. And since the signing of the treaty and the rapture are two separate events, there must necessarily be a length of time between them. They do not happen simultaneously, at least as far as the biblical record concerns is concerned. So since they're separate events, there must be a length of time between them. Um, we, uh, we don't know exactly what all is going to happen in that length of time. In my book, I uh, speculate that I believe that's when the Battle of Gog and Magog happens because after the rapture, that's when all of that one-sixth of the future things that have yet to happen start to happen. And we know for a great deal of them when they will happen relative to each other. Some of them, it's a little less clear. So there are scholars that think the Ezekiel 38 and 39 battle, which we call the Battle of Gog and Magog, prophesied in Ezekiel 38 and 39, will happen during the tribulation, in the first half or second half, all different periods of time. But in my view, it cannot happen until after the rapture because the rapture is imminent. The doctrine of imminency is a key doctrine. Uh, and therefore, it must happen after the rapture, and I think it takes place in this period of time. So it's my uh, view uh, that after the rapture, there's such chaos on the world with the sudden disappearance of millions of people that uh, nations that are enemies of Israel take advantage of this chaos to invade Israel from the north. And during that time, a, an alliance that we read about in Daniel, we read about the northern alliance from Ezekiel 38 and 39, in Daniel, we read about a Western alliance forming to come in and try to protect Israel. Yet, what the Bible teaches in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is that it's not this Western alliance that defends Israel. It's God supernaturally defending Israel. So as this nation from the north is coming in to slaughter Israel and take over the land, the Holy Land, God supernaturally defends them. And in, in, in literally in supernatural ways. If you've ever seen the uh, film uh, Left Behind, based on the Tim LaHaye book, they do an excellent job in that film 
of picturing what it might look like. I mean, planes just falling out of the sky for no reason and blowing up and whatever. Now, the, I might interject that the Left Behind series, both the book and the movie, they put the Battle of Gog and Magog that I'm describing before the rapture, but that was not Tim LaHaye's view. I knew Tim LaHaye, talked to him many times. I asked him, why did you put the Battle of Gog and Magog before the rapture? He said, no, 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 I don't believe that. It happens after the rapture. It has to because of the doctrine of eminency. But uh, Jenkins just thought that made for more, you know, for a better story. So that was not his particular view. And he was an expert um, uh, scholar on the end times. He's with the Lord now. So that battle is kind of ensuing. God is protecting Israel, but the Western alliance, the leader of it, the political military leader of that alliance of nations from the West, takes credit for defending Israel. And essentially, he says something like, I, you know, this is again my speculation, this isn't spelled out as such in Scripture, but I think it fits the biblical uh, narrative. He says, so, see, look what I did, I... In the midst of this unprecedented chaos, when aliens have captured millions of people and taken them off to, you know, planet whatever, uh, which is the way they're going to describe what happens at the rapture, we, I've come in and I've saved the world from World War IV, which is probably what it'll be by then. Um, and so that propels this leader to world fame, and he then signs a treaty coming out of that military engagement that is corresponds to the Daniel 9:27 peace treaty and starts the clock ticking and he becomes the antichrist. Now, can I prove that? No, but it certainly fits the biblical uh, narrative. So that's why you see on the chart there a unspecified length of time between the rapture and the signing of the peace treaty. Uh, we don't know exactly what happens in there. Again, many people, myself included, think the Battle of Gog and Magog goes in there and in my book What Lies Ahead at the back I have an appendix called uh, sequential order of end times events, and, and you'll see that's kind of how I lay it out, what I just described. Uh, so that's where we are on the chart. The rapture has put an end to the church age. And then we have several passages in the New Testament that give us the details that we know about the rapture. Uh, chief among them is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. We'll spend a lot of time there. 1 Corinthians 15, which I've already referenced, where the rapture is called a mystery. 2 Thessalonians 2, which, by the way, I believe is the strongest biblical text that teaches a pre-tribulational rapture. Okay. I don't think, uh, I think you can get there by understanding the wrath of God and that we're, not, we're rescued before the wrath. But if you understand 2 Thessalonians 2, and if I'm understanding it correctly it becomes an open and shut case that the rapture must happen prior to the Antichrist being unveiled and the seven-year tribulation. Titus 2.13 is a famous rapture passage looking for the blessed hope. And then, of course, the two passages in 1 Thessalonians that speak of us being rescued or delivered before the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 and 1 Thessalonians 5.9. And then the one I've already mentioned, which chronologically was the earliest reference on earth to the rapture, which is Jesus' statement in the upper room in uh, John 14. So let's uh, at least get started. We're, we've got about five minutes left uh, with 1 Thessalonians 4, which is the primary teaching about the rapture. And we'll see where this actual term is used in Scripture. Uh, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, 
with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. You can see the parallels between this verse and what we've already read in 1 Corinthians 50, uh, 15, 51 and 52. Uh, then the dead in Christ will rise first. Then those of us who are alive, that means believers who haven't died, because remember, believers who have died, your soul goes immediately to be in the presence of the Lord. Paul said in, uh, in 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And he also said in uh, Philippians, when he was nearing death, boy, I, I really desire to depart from here and be with the Lord, to die. But uh, it's more needful for me to stay here in the flesh and be with you to help. And I'm in a strait between the two, and I can't decide which one I want to do more. So to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But believers who've, who've died, that is, people who've placed their faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone as the only hope of salvation, they die, they, their soul goes to heaven, their body goes to the grave or wherever it goes. It's cremated, it was lost at sea, whatever it might be. But he says it's those believers who will be resurrected first, the physicality of them, the physical bodies, so that their physical body can put on immortality. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 15 to talk about how this corruptible, our physical body, and if, you, if you're not uh, sure whether your body is being corrupted, then go home and do this little exercise when you get home after church today. I want you to find a wedding picture from your wedding day. And then I want you to pull out your wallet and look at your current driver's license picture and compare the two. It will be self-evident that your body is being uh, corrupted. But he says this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality, that our bodies must, must have a glorified body to be in heaven. So that's what he means by the dead in Christ will rise first. But now we come to the actual rapture part. Those Then we who are alive and remain, that is believers who haven't died. So for example, if the rapture were to happen right now, that would mean us if you know the Lord. For us, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Together with who? Our Loved ones who know the Lord who will be coming back with Him in their soul, but their physical bodies will be reunited with their soul and they'll have a glorified body. So it'll be this grand reunion in the sky. But see that word caught up in red on the screen? <clears throat> That's the Greek word harpazo. Harpazo. To snatch or take away. It's used 13 times in the New Testament and it's where we get the word rapture. Because when the Greek New Testament was translated into Latin by Jerome. They used the word rapire, or rapture, right? So it is a biblical term, right? People say to me all the time, uh, the word, you know, rapture is never used in the Bible. And I say, you, you know, they say it's not used a single time in the Bible. I say, you're right, it's used 13 times in the Bible. It's used 13 times. Uh, uh, for example, in Acts chapter 8, same word, harpazo, or rapire, their Latin word. When they came out, this is Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away. Caught away. Same word, harpazo. Uh, if you look it up in a lexicon, one of the definitions is to rescue from threatening danger. Harpazo. Well, that's exactly what it means as it relates to these future things, this event that we've called the rapture, following the biblical terminology. Uh, but it's not used only... Uh, there in the sense of rescuing from threatening danger. It's used, for example, in Jude 23, when he said, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, pulling out, harpazo, snatching them out of harm's way. 
And that's the sense that we get when we come to 1 Thessalonians 4. That the wrath of Almighty God is about to be poured out on the earth in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, just like God said it would. And God has a special blessing, a mystery for the church, the bride of Christ, such that we do not have to face the wrath of God. If you know the Lord, you shall never face the wrath of God. Even though there are some people who teach uh, that we will, the, the Bible teaches otherwise. And so we will be rescued, snatched out of harm's way, rescued from threatening danger uh, in that moment. And uh, the best illustration I can give, which I've used often, you may have heard it if you've uh, read the book or listened to some of the other videos, but if you just imagine a youngster chasing a ball into the street, maybe he's playing in the front yard and he chases his ball out into the street and his mom's sitting on the porch and and the whole thing kind of happens right before her eyes, but it happens so fast, it's this horrifying scene as a car is coming speeding around the corner just as the little one is running out chasing a ball in the middle of the street. And he's about to be run over and killed. But as fate would have it, a, a, a jogger happens to be running by right at that time and just in the nick of time sees what's happening, thinks quickly on his feet or her feet, and reaches out, grabs the child by the back of the collar and yanks them out of the way as the car goes speeding by, right? Snatched out of harm's way. And, you know, God's prophetic plan of the ages involves a lot. One-sixth of the Bible is yet to come. And one event of that is the rapture, but the rest of that, which would be 99% of it, is all about God's interactions with mankind on earth in this cosmic struggle between Lucifer and God coming to full you know, fruition and reaching a climax, first at the Battle of Armageddon and then at the end of the millennium. And God is going to rescue us before that battle and that cosmic struggle reaches its pinnacle. So we'll have to leave it there for today. We'll come back next time and talk about rescued specifically from what, and I'll show you biblically why the answer is the wrath of God that is about to come on planet Earth. All right, well, thank you guys. We'll leave it there for now, and we'll pick it up again uh, next week.